We're going to continue with the story uh, today, and we're going to talk about how the ministry, chapter 23, the ministry of Jesus begins. And uh, my take on it is we're going to be searching for Jesus through some questions and answers. Um, we have a, I don't know if y'all remember old school, we used to be taught on creative writing and stuff. You had questions that you had to answer to make the story flow. Uh, it's who, what, when, where, why, how, which, those kinds of things. And that's what we're going to kind of weave into this message today to discover more about Jesus and the beginnings of his ministry. Uh, before I do that, though, I'm going to try to sing. I'm going to have to back off of that. And, uh, this is an old song from Truth, Chris. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You said that the other day, so I said, oh, okay. But it goes along uh, right with the message today, and it just happens to weave right in with the last song that we were singing about He is Able, and that's the title of the song. All right, we're going to talk about the ministry of Jesus and searching for Jesus this morning and uh, answer some questions about Jesus and hopefully in that learn more about him. Anybody want to learn more about Jesus? We can't know too much, and there's a lot more to know than what we think we know. <laughs> I've been living for the Lord. I celebrated my uh, 50th birthday in the Lord this past May. And uh, in those 50 years, I've learned there's a lot more to learn. And uh, the, the deeper you want to go, the deeper it is as far as walking in Christ and knowing him. So today, we're going to look at this. And the, uh, the questions up there, we're going to answer uh, as we go through the message today. So first of all, why did he come? Why did he come? Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. There's the purpose of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of ministry. He didn't come to find people or to seek people or save people that thought that they are already well off. It's when we finally discover and realize by the help of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that we do need a Savior that Jesus is there, ready to do. So our first question, why did he come? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The next question is, what did you hear? In the passage in Luke that they talked about briefly here where Jesus was baptized, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 says this, When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then a voice out of heaven said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then verse 23, since we're talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, here it is in Luke 3.23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years old, being, uh, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And so here we find... The, uh, the perfect example of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. So when we search for Jesus, we find the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in one scene at the baptism. These are important things that we need to know. These are doctrines that we need to know. Because there are plenty of people out there today that are either ignorant of what the Scripture says, or they want to challenge what the Scripture says. 
They want to say that there's not three in one. Well, right here there is three in one. God speaking from God the Father speaking from heaven, the Son standing in the water, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him. There was another place where God spoke. What do you hear in John 20, uh, 12, 28? It says this. Jesus was praying, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore stood by and heard that, but they said it had thundered. And then others said an angel spoke to him. And then Jesus answered and said, the voice came not because of me, but for your sake. Now, if you read a little bit before that, you'll find out that there was a crowd of Greeks that had come there who spoke primarily Greek. So we don't know, but maybe this voice was in Greek. Um, let me do, not a rabbit trail, Pastor Mark. Rabbit trail's wrong, Pastor Mark. I'm going to do a scenic overlook. <laughs> okay? There is here a, a, where they hear a voice, and it's, it's a thing that puzzles me in my heart is, what do we hear when God speaks? What do we hear when God speaks? Do we hear thunder? Do we hear angels? Some of us are waiting for God to speak out of the corner of the room, you know. Some, some of us wait for an angel visitation to come and give us direction. Where does God speak? How does God speak? It's right here. This is where God speaks to us. And he put it in writing so that there would be no confusion. There would be no need for us to wonder what God is saying, what God wants us to know about him. It's all right there in that word. So we need to look because sometimes, or let's say most of the time, we hear only what we want to hear. Hmm? Any of you not in agreement? Most of, uh, most of the time, we only hear what we want to hear. Sometimes, we listen only to what we think we need to listen to. And we filter out the rest. And that's the way we read the Word of God. <laughs> when we read the Word of God, we're, we're sometimes looking for a proof text to things that we already believe. When we read the Word of God, we're looking for God to confirm what we want to do. But the Word of God is the standard. It doesn't change. How often then do we hear, listen to, and then obey the whole truth? That's the real question as we're searching for Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus said, I'm the truth. If we're searching for Jesus, we're searching for the truth. But we need to hear what the Spirit says to us. Not with a preconceived idea of what we want to hear. Not with a preconceived idea of I, I'm going to take out of it just the portion that I want to apply to me. But to listen for the whole truth. What did Jesus ask? I wanted to make sure in this you know, all these, these uh, story chapters are kind of condensations. They're, they're condensed versions of what actually goes on in the Scripture, or we'd be here all day. Less than a Reader's Digest version, in fact. So the sermon has to be even more compact than that. So I look for things to kind of pull out of these first years of Jesus' ministry as he began. One of them that kind of popped out with, to me is Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is asking some questions. So here it is, what did Jesus ask? Jesus asked his disciples, 
Who do people say that I am? Jesus went out along with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, others said one of the prophets. There's a lot of opinions about Jesus out there. There's a lot of opinions about Jesus. What opinion really counts? The Word. What does the Word say about Jesus? And that's hopefully what we're going to be going through today as we go through this message, is what does the Word say about Jesus and His ministry? And begin to reestablish the roots that we need to in biblical truth about who Jesus is. Because the next question he asked was directly to the believers, to the disciples that were there with him. Because he said in Mark 8, 29, he continued by questioning them, who do you say that I am? Peter, ever being ready with a word or an answer, says, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus let him know that he didn't get that on his own. Do you know that we don't get truth on our own? We get it when the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, and it's right here in this Word. So reading this book is not enough. You can't just read it as a novel. You can't just read it as a collection of facts. You have to read it with the author present. And fortunately for us, we are blessed to have that very privilege, that every time we pick up this book and open it up, we can invite the author to join us and enlighten us to what the truth of this word really is so that he can reveal to us who Jesus really is. That's what Jesus was getting at. And actually, he was asking three questions in one because he asked, who is Jesus in the world's eyes? Then he asked, who is Jesus to you? And then, really, he was asking, who is Jesus in reality? What is the reality of Jesus Christ? Well, I have a little um, example up here that I want to share with you. Anybody ever seen this? Huh? First century church, this was often a way to identify other believers. In the midst of persecution, it wasn't a good thing to wear a Christian badge. You know, people didn't wear cross necklaces and, you know, uh, I love Jesus bumper stickers. But they would, when believers would meet each other and kind of recognize each other, they would draw in the sand with their foot one arc of the fish. And then the other person on the other side would draw another arc and make the fish. Do you know why? What does fish have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus obviously told his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. So is that connection. But there's more than that, and I want to take you through that real quick. Go ahead and put the next one up. The Greek word for fish is ichthus, I-C-H-T-H-U-S. That's where we get our word ichthyology, the study of fish. Imagine that. So ichthus is the word for fish. Who is Jesus in reality? We're going to find out. He is ichthus. The letters that spell out fish are I-C-H-T-H-U-S. The I looks like an I, fortunately for us. The thing that looks like an X is actually our letters, C-H. By the way, that's where Xmas comes from. We, we get all offended by that, but it's actually the first two letters of Jesus' name, Christ, 
Christos. Um, <laughs> and the next one that, well, the, the line kind of fell down. I don't know why I did that. But anyway, there's a, there's a circle with a line in it, and that is the TH, and then the U looks like a U, and the S, well, it's supposed to be a, a, a thing that, that looks like an S, but a sigma instead. My uh, things did not translate well. <laughs> so let's go ahead and look at the rest of it then. No telling what these are going to be saying. Okay. Uh, so the I is the Greek word for Jesus, Jesus. The CH we talked about is Christos, or Christ. The TH is Theo, which means God's with an apostrophe S, belonging to God. And then the U is Uyas, which is Son. And the S stands for Soter, which is Savior. So the I-C-H-T-H-U-S is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It's a whole lot of theology in one little symbol. So when they drew the arch and the other side of the arch, they were confirming with one another. Jesus Christ is God's Son and our Savior. Now if you want this, I've got little uh, pocket-sized ones back there on the dark tablecloth uh, table back there. So you can pick those up after service if you'd like. Don't try to draw it. or <laughs> I don't want you to get distracted in that. So, that's Jesus. So then the question becomes, who do you see? Who do we see when we look at Jesus? Do we see the Messiah, a good teacher, a prophet, a deliverer, a healer, a miracle worker? Well, all of those things are part of who Jesus is. But somehow the Jewish followers there wanted a sign. They needed a sign of some kind. Now, fortunately, we're not like that today, are we? We don't need a sign. No. No. The sign warns us a little bit because when we're looking for a sign, we need to remember in scriptural terms in the Bible, it's not about the sign. It's not about the sign. The sign is not the thing. <laughs> the sign points to the thing. Huh? So when you come to the, to the city and it says Calera out there on the interstate, doesn't mean that that sign is Calera. It's pointing to where Calera is. And so are the signs that Jesus did in the Scripture and that we have happening in today's world. If they don't point to Jesus, then they're not a sign from Him. The Holy Spirit is someone who always points to Jesus. He said that He had come to bring glory to Jesus, to call our attention to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to Me. And so the Holy Spirit is the sign that points to Jesus. The miracles, the things that happen in church that are miraculous and out of the normal, that are supernatural, all those things point to Jesus so that Jesus is lifted up so that men and women can be drawn to Him. That's the purpose. If it draws attention to anything else, if it draws attention to the preacher, something's out of whack. If it draws attention to a particular congregation or a particular method or methodology, something's out of whack. The sign needs to point to Jesus. In Scripture, this word means a mark, an indicator, or a token. It's an outward sign of what's going on. 
for the Jews, what they were looking for is an outward demonstration that he was the Messiah and bringing in the kingdom of God. However, for them, the definition of kingdom of God was quite different than what Jesus was talking about. They wanted the kingdom of God to overthrow the Roman oppression and establish a new Jewish kingdom where all of them could prosper and thrive. When Jesus came with the message, that's not what I'm here for. When Jesus became the suffering servant, it confused them. And sometimes it angered them because he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. Uh-oh. Does that, do we fall into that category sometimes? Jesus doesn't do what we thought he would do. We need a sign. We need something, Lord, to do this and show me that you're still... And he doesn't do that. Hmm. When my eyes fail to see, he is able. Even though it seems impossible to me at the time, I don't know, Lord, that I can take another step in this walk in this direction, in this suffering, in this pain, in this way of dealing with life, He is still Lord. He is still Lord. The sign needs to point to Jesus and Jesus alone. Many want a Savior, but not a Lord. Save us from hell, but don't, don't mess up my life. My lifestyle. To use his authority, but not submit to it. Some of us want to use his authority to, you know, rebuke the devil and, you know, chase off demons and do this and do that. But then when we're going on and living our life, we don't want his authority in our everyday life. But guess what? Does that change the sovereignty of God at all? No. You know what that does? That puts us puny humans in direct opposition to the authority of Almighty God. Ooh. Talk about risk. That's a hard way to live. And then we wonder why we struggle sometimes. Perhaps we're fighting the wrong ruler. We're fighting the wrong ruler. John said, he must increase. I must decrease. When we get into that position where the sovereignty of God takes priority in our lives, things change. It may not change to the way we want it to, as the song said, if he chooses not to move in the way we thought he would. <laughs> he still is God, and he still is good. That's the thing we need to remember always. When things are not going my way, they're still going the best way if I'm in submission to what God is doing. Sometimes we want a strong deliverer to use his power, but then we don't allow him to influence us in a guide to making changes in our lifestyles. We want a strong deliverer to get us out of the hole, to get us out of the chains, to get us out of the bondage, to get us out of the bind. But then when he tries to do the same thing to deliver us from habits that we have become accustomed to and, you know, our pet things that we want to do, our pet sins that we want to hang on to, not so much. It's getting quieter and quieter. 
We want a miraculous healer, but not an abiding, constant companion. We want Jesus to heal us, but after that, go ahead, Lord, go on your way, I'm good now. Right? I got this. That seems to be what we say to God. Now, we're, we're not usually brash enough to say that to God. But in our hearts, the attitude is there. And guess what? God doesn't look on outward appearance when we stand in church and piously raise our hands. God looks on the attitude of our hearts. And so He knows when He has healed us, when He has done something for us, when He has intervened and changed and done things for us that no one else could do. And we give Him a praise, we maybe give Him a testimony, but then we say, okay, God, I got this. And we want to go on and live like we want to live until the next time we fall into a hole. Until the next time we come into a barrier that we can't get around. Until the next time we face a sickness that the doctors shake their heads and walk away. Hmm. So, let's look at it this way. Jesus wants us to be all that we can be in Him. We need to stay in Him. We need to be able to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now those words are fairly simple to say. It didn't take anything extra out of me just now to say them. But to live them, to make decisions based on that is very, very difficult for the flesh. And usually I find that if it's a decision that I'm making and my flesh is happy, it's probably something I shouldn't be doing. Because Paul said he had to die daily to the old nature. And so if that's Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, where does that leave me? Every five minutes? You know, it's not a good situation. So most of the time, we see only what we want to see. We see just enough of Jesus to get us through. We take a peek at Him on Sunday morning. We take a peek at Him in His Word, maybe, in a brief devotional. And then we forget about it the next day. <clears throat> Sometimes... We see only what we think we need to see. Have you ever noticed that? We filter things. Have you ever looked at a big picture and had one thing that you were focused on because it was something you were interested on, but you missed a lot of the details that were around that centerpiece? That's kind of like it is with Jesus. Sometimes we get distracted by something that we're focused on over here. Jesus is here. And so we only see what we want to see. We don't see Jesus in the midst of the circumstances. We don't see Jesus in the midst of the suffering. We don't see Jesus in the midst of the desert when we're not feeling it. Because we're focused on the circumstances instead of the Savior. Rarely, if ever, do we see all there is to see. I would dare us today to make this bold prayer. Lord, pull back the curtain. Pull back the curtain. 
and let me see things as you see them. Not in my little tunnel vision. Not in just the way my perspective is limited to. But pull back that curtain and let me see all there is to see that you have, that you want to do, it'll scare you. Because there'll be things out there that you say, there's no way I can do that. And you're right, no way that we can do that. But in Christ, Jesus said, with these things, men can't handle it. But with God, all things are possible. And whatever is out there, whatever's on the horizon, God has, oh, I wish we could see today this room through God's eyes and see the potential for the kingdom of God that is right here today. Wow. It would blow your mind. It would, you'd be shouting for joy to what God has, not only for you, but also for everybody else around you. You'd some of you would be amazed. You mean God can use her? It's amazing what we do when we see as God sees. Who do you see? So that leads us now to the next question. Which Jesus do you follow? Which Jesus do you follow? Do you follow the world's view? That's what Jesus asked. Who do people say that I am? The world's view of Jesus is usually weak and meek. Weak and meek. They don't understand that meekness comes from strength. Meekness comes from strength, not weakness. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is meek because He has the confidence in who he is, he has the confidence in his Father to know that nothing is impossible. His meekness is based in the strength of his identity. He knows who he is. The issue is for us then to see Jesus in that same light. To see our identity in him. There's a fairy tale Jesus. Did you know that? Yeah. Some folks have a fairy tale Jesus. He grants wishes. He makes bad things go away. He poofs, you know, and changes us instantly. Right? We're dressed in rags, and then we're dressed in marvelous clothes to go to the ball. The fairy tale Jesus. I've found in 50 years that that's not the Jesus I know. Now, there have been times when he has intervened in my life, and I've seen him intervene in the life of others, and miracles have happened. But that's not necessarily who or why I serve him. Not the fairy tale Jesus. Not the Jesus I run to and ask for three wishes. Not the Jesus I try to use the word against and try to manipulate him to do what I want him to do by repeating his promises back to him and say, Lord, you've got to do this. <laughs> uh, the creator being talked to by his creation. <laughs> you 
It's funny in a sad way. Which Jesus do you seek? I came up with a statement a couple sermons back, but I'll repeat it again today. Opinions are relative. Truth is immutable. Opinions are relative. Truth is immutable. Now, if you want an opinion, go to Facebook. There's tens of thousands of them out there. If you want the truth, go to the Word of God. Because once again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. That doesn't change. No matter how people want to distort who Jesus is and make Him weak and meek, or make Him some fairy tale God, Jesus is still the way, the truth, the life. There is no other. You cannot come to the Father except through Him. You cannot find truth except in Him. You will never have the abundant life that God intended for you except through Him. That's Jesus that we're searching for today. So now let's look at another aspect of Jesus. Which Jesus do you follow? Here's one, the obedient son. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that he was tempted in all points like as we, but yet without sin. Which takes us to right after that baptism scene where Jesus comes up out of the water and he's led into the wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he's fasting in the wilderness, but he's not alone. The enemy is there. Satan is there to tempt him. So if we want to search for Jesus and find out who Jesus is, and we learn that he was able to be tempted in all points like as we are without sin, then we probably need to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11 through 11 and find out how did Jesus handle temptation? If he succeeded, then he's the model, right? He was perfect in all the things that say. Do you think, do you actually really believe that Jesus was only tempted three times in 40 days? Probably not. Probably not. Those are three categories, I believe, that Jesus was tempted in. I don't think the devil left him alone for a single moment, you know? Anybody like that? You ever feel like the enemy's after you all the time? Enticing you? Putting bait out there? Disguising the hook with what you've always wanted? That's the way he works. So there were three strategies that are exposed in the Scripture that the enemy used to tempt Jesus. One we'll call despair. A loss of hope. Anybody ever been tempted in despair? Why are suicides so high in our world today? Because people are losing hope. Two of the big signs of a suicide potential is hopelessness and helplessness. If we lose hope, we tend to be in a place in a dark hole and we find no way out. It's kind of like that pit that the psalmist describes in Psalm 40. I was in a pit, you know. That's, that's what we look at. But that strategy of despair, that loss of hope, 
is what many refer to as the lust of the flesh. Bread making, into, uh, stone being made into bread, and basically doing what feels right, what satisfies the flesh. That's what, that's what the enemy was bringing to him. He didn't want to see him just do another miracle. I mean, Jesus could easily turn stones into bread. It was the root motivation behind that. You're hungry. You've been on this fast. Now, let's see you do something that will satisfy your flesh. That's exactly where he hits us as well. He wants us to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the desires. What is the word lust? Sometimes in our modern society, the word lust is so often associated with sexual things. But the word lust simply means strong desire. Strong desire. And so when we look at the strong desires of the flesh, I'll let you define that for yourself. What is a strong desire of your flesh that you know goes counter to what God want you to live. If you keep going in that direction, you will find yourself in despair. Why? Because our hope is in Christ. If we go in the opposite direction, if we walk away from him, then we walk away from hope. The second thing is deception. Deception is a loss of truth. Many describe this as the pride of life. We become so pumped up with ourselves and so impressed with our own abilities that we believe that we can do it without God. Deception. Deception is exactly what I was talking about a few minutes ago, that baited hook. The word deception in the scripture actually comes from the baiting of a hook. It's a hook that is there, but it's covered with something enticing for whatever we're trying to entrap. And when you're on the hook, you get taken to places you don't want to go. And things happen to you that you don't want to happen to you. Some of us in this room have been on a hook. And Jesus has taken you off of that hook and delivered you. But the deception is where we begin to go after the hook. That's where Jesus was told, hey, step off this thing and, and the angels will catch you. The pride of life. I can do it. I can do it. God's got me. Listen, we don't need to presume upon God's goodness. <laughs> Sometimes Christians try to live as close to the edge of the cliff as we can and expect God to preserve us. Really quiet, huh? <clears throat> Sometimes we want to push the boundary just a bit. Boundaries are not there to keep us in. They're to protect us from what's on the other side. That's what those boundaries are for. When God checks you on something that you're doing, when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit pulling you back from making a particular choice or behavior, it's not because God wants to ruin your day. It's not because God wants to kind of stomp over you like a, you know, a guy with a big stick. It's because God knows what's on the other side of that boundary, and he's trying to protect you from your own choices. Oh, well, we'll move on. The third one is distraction. 
which is a loss of focus. Some refer to this as the lust of the eye. A loss of focus. This is where Satan wanted him to worship. He wanted Jesus to worship him so that he can take control. Sometimes we are in that place where we are distracted. We lose focus. We know that Hebrews tells us, keep your eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. But yet, squirrel. Some, something bright and dazzling over here. And we look, and next thing you know, we're kind of wandering off. I had an uncle that did that when he was driving, which was really scared. It caused me to pray a lot more. But he'd be driving down the road and see an exit and kind of drift in that direction just because there was an exit there. And sometimes that's the way we live for God. The enemy shows us an exit and maybe has a bright sign on there and says, stop here. And it entices us to get off. But God says, straight is the way. Narrow is the path. And so we have to stay the course not be distracted by the enemy's enticements. I don't think we've ever lived in a society where there were more distractions. I mean, we thought when, when I was a kid, which was, you know, a couple of years ago, we thought we were in a world of distractions. But our young people today, I mean, goodness, they have all kinds of stuff out there bedazzling them and drawing them and enticing them and encouraging them and drawing them in and sucking them in to eat up their time, to eat up their day, to fill their mind with stuff that is just like cotton candy. It's sweet, but there's nothing there. The single strategy of Jesus, and here's where the real key point of this whole thing is about the temptation. Notice, the enemy tried these three different strategies to tempt Jesus, but Jesus had a single strategy, and that was Scripture. Truth. Truth. Do we know enough Scripture? Have we memorized and put in our hearts and minds enough Scripture so that when the enemy comes to us with a distraction, when the enemy comes to us with a deception, when the enemy tries to impose on us despair, do we have the Word in us enough to say, Get thee behind me, Satan, thus says the word of God. Or do you have to text Pastor Mark? Do you have to Facebook Pastor Chris? Do you message Brian? Now I know there's growth and there's maturity and all that kind of stuff and we're here to help you with, with those things. But at the same time, there are things that you should be able to, as you grow in Christ, to know the Word enough to say, this is what the Word says, you're a liar. Remember what Jesus said about Satan? He said he was the father of all lies. It's what started in the garden with a lie. And he's been doing that ever since. And so the only antidote to a lie is... Truth. What is truth? 
right here. Jesus is the embodiment, the personification of truth. That's where we need to go when we are tempted. The next thing that we need to look at is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. Now, he was rejected by the religious ones, the scribes and the Pharisees. But notice where he went. Where did Jesus go? There's one of our questions. Where did Jesus go? One of the places he went to was the obstinate ones. Obstinate is just a 50-cent word for stubborn. Hard-headed. He went to the obstinate ones who were in Jerusalem primarily, the religious people, these scribes and these Pharisees who already thought they knew the truth, therefore they weren't open to the real truth. They had prescribed for themselves truth by writing additional things in the law to make it so that it would fit their lifestyle and their way of doing things and make everybody else conform to it. That's not the life of Christ. If you read Galatians, you'll find out that Christ came to give us liberty and freedom. But he also said, don't use that freedom, that liberty, for a reason to just do whatever you want to do without any kind of regard for what else is going on. So the obstinate ones. Jesus is still reaching out to the obstinate ones today, the stubborn ones, the religious ones who think that they already know everything there is to know, who have been locked into their doctrine so long they no longer need the Bible. The other thing that he went to was the ordinary ones. Aren't you glad for that? He went from Jerusalem into Judea, the lost ones. Why does the Son of Man come? To seek and to save that which was lost. And so the ordinary people, the people who were lost, he went to them. The third group was the outcast ones. Jesus went through Samaria, which is a huge no-no for any Jews, especially someone who was supposed to be a rabbi. It's like finding a preacher in a strip joint. You're not supposed to be there, Jesus. And now you're talking to one of them? A woman who's had multiple husbands? Oh, my goodness. Jesus came under a lot of criticism for hanging out with the wrong crowd. He ate with publicans and sinners. He ate and, and, and asked water for, from a Samaritan. If you don't know who the Samaritans are, you need to do some research and find out what the history is between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were the rejected ones, but Jesus went to them, and he still does today. To the religious ones who are stubbornly anchored into their own belief and their own system, Jesus still goes and says, come home, come home. Finally, the fourth category is he goes to the open-hearted ones. Those who would hear and listen and obey. Before we can listen, we must hear. After we have listened, we must then choose to obey or ignore. Before we can listen, before we can listen, we have to hear. That's what Paul talks about. How can they hear you know, without somebody out there to preach the gospel? 
Before we can listen, we have to hear. After we have listened, we have to choose what we're going to do with what we've listened to. Obey it or ignore it. There is no middle ground. You have to know what you're going to do with Jesus because I guarantee you that's going to be a question on Judgment Day. What have you done with Jesus? Here's some listening skills that I share with lots of couples when I'm doing marriage counseling. We sometimes don't hear or listen to the complete message because we're so busy preparing our response or our defense to what's being said. The whole time Jesus is trying to talk to us, we're trying to make an excuse for what we've been doing. And so we don't really hear the whole thing because we're trying to formulate an answer, a response. But I guarantee you those words will fall from your lips. Those words will freeze in your throat on the day you stand before him. And God asks us, what have you done with Jesus? Many people don't want to listen because they have no intention to obey. Many people don't listen with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. If you're so busy generating a response, you won't hear the whole truth from this pulpit or any, anywhere else. Now, the truth is proclaimed from this pulpit every week. But if we're distracted... What is that? That's one of the enemy's strategies. If we're distracted by our own thinking, if we're distracted by our own rationalization, trying to get our defenses built up to say, well, no, God, you, you, don't, you, know, you don't really mean that. I don't have to give up that. I don't have to stop doing this. I don't have to do this, do I? Sometimes the doing is harder than the don't doing. As I said earlier, most of the time we hear only what we want to hear. Sometimes we listen to only what we need, think we need to listen to, and rarely, if ever, do we hear the whole truth and obey it. So we come to this conclusion today. What have you heard the Spirit saying to you today? What have you heard the Spirit saying to you today? Do you know Jesus? Have you been able to answer these questions in your own heart and mind in an honest way before God? Because if you're here today and you know Jesus, then you need to be able to say, I'm in a relationship with Him that says, I don't not only know Him, I not only hear His voice, I listen to what he says, and I want in every way to obey what he does and what he says for my life. There's one perhaps forgotten question that we haven't addressed today. Sometimes it's a question that we try to avoid, and that's how much. We don't want to think about how much. How much did he pay? Think about the price that Jesus paid so that we could sit here today 
and call ourselves believers, call ourselves Christians. Walk in a way that even in the midst of storms and trials, we know he's right there with us because he said he'd never leave us or forsake us. How much did he pay? It cost God his son. It cost his son everything. There's an interesting passage in Philippians chapter 2 that talks about how Jesus had to empty himself out in order to become one of us. By a choice of his own will and by a design from the Father, he obediently emptied himself out to become one of us. But yet he was fully God and fully man. The mystery of the incarnation. How much did Jesus pay? He paid everything. He paid everything for us. The salvation that he purchased for us was a high cost. But you notice that the scripture very carefully tells us that he laid down his life. No one took it from him. It was his choice in obedience to the Father to lay his life down. One of the last sayings from the cross was Jesus when he said, It is finished. The word that is behind that is one word in Greek, testelotai. And that word literally means paid in full. It was something that was written at the bottom of receipts when they bought something in the marketplace. That's what Jesus said when he said it is finished. Paid in full. How much does it cost? It cost him everything, but it has been paid in full. There's nothing more for us to add to salvation. For us, that is full and free. But there is a cost that we do need to talk about. How much do we pay? What is the cost of discipleship? There have been books written about this. A good one is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What is the cost of discipleship? Jesus himself said this. If you want to be my disciple, number one, fun and games. Deny yourself. Ooh. The flesh just kind of creeps and crawls when, when you hear those words. Deny myself. What? Take up your cross. Ooh, another fun one. Paul said the taking up the cross involved him dying daily. That means that we have to deny ourselves, say no to our flesh, take up a cross that says, I'm ready to lay myself down for Jesus on a daily basis. In fact, Luke adds that, take up your cross daily and then follow him. That's the price. Jesus paid it all for our salvation. Are we willing to pay the cost to be his disciples? How much are you willing to be a disciple of Christ? Jesus paid it all for salvation. We don't have to do anything for that. God, in his grace and mercy, has paid and paved the way for all of us to be saved. Do you hear his voice today? What has the Spirit said to you in these questions that we've answered? Does it say to you that I need to have a, a relationship with Christ like what you've been talking about? Because that's not the Jesus I really know. I know the fairy tale Jesus. But I have never really known all these other aspects of who Jesus is. 
but I'm searching for Jesus. Well, he's right here in this word. And he's right here today because he said where two or three would come together in his name, he would be in their midst. If you're here and you're a believer, have you counted the cost of your discipleship? Are you coasting to heaven? Hoping God won't notice? Are you ready to work for the kingdom? To do what Jesus said we should do as his disciples? There is a price for us to pay, not for salvation, but for following Jesus. Because we live in a hostile environment, believe it or not. This world is not our home. We're just passing through this place. You will find hostility here. The cost of discipleship. I have to deny myself, not do just what feels good. I have to take up my cross and be ready to crucify those things in my life that God's Word puts the spotlight on and says that doesn't belong there. And then on a daily basis, make a choice. Today, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to follow the desires of my flesh. I'm not going to do just what I want to do. I'm going to submit to what God has for me today. And that may mean some divine coincidences, some divine appointments in your life, where God will, you start praying like that, and God will put people in your life, in your pathway, to give you the opportunity to share with them. But it's not just sharing with them the gospel, it's also a learning experience of obedience. And we're going we're gonna to do some more on this as the series continues, and I don't want to get on other people's uh, topics, but let me just tell you today, I want to pray with you. As Micah and the, and the group are coming back up, I want to pray with you briefly, and if you want to talk about this some more, Pastor Mark and I, or Pastor Chris, are here today. We'd be more than happy to talk to you about it some more about following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity and privilege to share your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work in this place and that you would open hearts and minds to receive truth, the truth of your word and the truth that is embodied in Jesus. If there's some here today that don't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would draw them to these altars and that they would find here a place of repentance and a place of cleansing and forgiveness. For those of us, Lord, who are following you, I pray that you would give us the courage and open our eyes to see what we need to do in our discipleship, that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name.